as you get to Exodus 2, if you will, hold your place there and turn to Acts chapter 7. Hold your place there. We're going to be uh, reading from those two passages to begin with, but just to reflect and uh, bring to our attention where we've been. So, uh, one of the things that we want to do in our time together today is see two characters that are extremely important for uh, the story of Exodus as they are brought into greater light. And today, uh, as you'll see on your outline, we want to look at the rescuer of Israel and ultimately the true rescuer or deliverer of Israel. A good framework to keep in mind is Genesis 15, chapter, uh, verse 13, where God comes and makes covenant with Abraham. Uh, in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord says this to Abraham, or Abram at the time. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." So if we're just doing the math, the time is drawing near. We've seen that the Lord has made promises to his people. We've seen that he's made covenant with Abraham saying, your people are going to be foreigners and afflicted in a a foreign land for upwards of 400 years. The time is drawing near. But as we remember what we talked about the past couple weeks, instead of things looking like they're getting better, things are actually looking way worse for the people of Israel. They're looking worse for God's people. And in fact, the people are being oppressed in greater, darker, really more disturbing ways. However, in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which is what we covered last week, we see a glimmer of hope enter into the story. What is it? A child is born. Uh, There's a new Marvel movie out this past week. I don't, with Marvel movies, not the biggest fan. And one of the reasons why is they all follow a, a certain formula. So with certain formulas, and you can do this with any type of movie genre that's extremely popular, you go see the movie, you see your characters, you can, once the movie begins, you can kind of guess what adversity they're going to come about, like what inner challenges they're going to have to face, what conflicts they're going to, you know, experience with one another, how they're going to get over the bad guy, and you can pretty much guess everything that happens in the movie. So we might be thinking as people who have been studying uh, through Genesis and now working through Exodus, we might be listening back and and hearing certain just echoes of the story so far and thinking, oh, well, I've seen Joseph, a Hebrew, kind of slip in through the cracks and become a powerful ruler and prince in Egypt who's able to protect his people and care for his people. We see Israel now in this land, and they're being oppressed for some, somewhere around 400 years. We see that things are getting darker, but we know that the Lord has promised salvation and deliverance, and we get this, this glimmer of hope in the fact that a child is born, and we think, ah, oh, okay. We see this child being born. Uh, his, his, his mother saves his life, puts him into the little, the little boat, little ark, right, little basket. He's rescued up out of the water where Pharaoh's daughter takes him in. He's raised up in Pharaoh's household, and we think, okay, I've heard stuff like this before. Maybe the Lord is raising up a new prince, a Hebrew prince, who's going to rise to power in Egypt and be able to deliver his people, to rescue his people from the bad guy. We, we see these formulas, right? We think that's what's going to happen. But one of the things that we see here in Acts chapter 2, verses 11 through 25, 
is that's not what's ha what happens. And in fact, whenever we keep the rest of the biblical storyline in mind, we see that the Lord would use what is weak in the eyes of the Lord to shame the strong. The, Lord's, the Lord would take what is foolish in the eyes of the Lord, in, in the world, to shame the wise. And in fact, as we see in Scripture, the Lord would take what is the great, one of the greatest torture devices ever created to kill a person. The Lord uses that to bring about salvation and deliverance for his people. So with this story of Moses, is Moses going to be the strong man who would come and deliver, who rises to power? He's got this position. He's got this influence. He's got this status. He's ready to go. Is he going to be this type of ruler and deliverer, rescuer for the people? That's what we read about in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. So let's read Exodus 2, 11 through 25, and then we're going to hop over to Acts chapter 7 to read that as well. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water the father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread." And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Acts chapter 7, verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. We're going to read this next verse, just the beginning portion. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. We'll stop there. Let's pray. 
Most holy God, we thank you for this day that you have blessed us with to come and worship you, to set our hearts and minds upon you in song and prayer, and even in reflecting on the joys of your salvation, on you being our good shepherd uh, through uh, just witnessing a good performance from the kids. We thank you for that in the ways that they minister to us. Lord God, we especially thank you now for the opportunity that we have to read and study from your word. We thank you, Lord God, that you delight to reveal yourself to your people. We thank you for the gracious gift of your word. Would you give us grace to listen well to what you would have to say to us? Would you open up our eyes that we might see you more clearly? Would you be glorified and exalted during this time? We pray this in your name. Amen. So, the rescuer revealed. So Moses has grown up, and according to Acts chapter 7, we get this account that he's about 40 years of age. So as he's 40 years of age, it comes, it comes into his heart to go out and see his brothers. So he goes out, he looks upon their burdens, and what does he see? He sees an Egyptian beating one of them, one of his brothers. And I think one of the things that we see here as Moses is intentionally going out and as he is looking upon the burden of his people, and we notice the strong language of these are his people, these are his brothers, I think what we're seeing here is Moses is beginning to identify as an Israelite, as a Hebrew. He's beginning to identify himself with his people. I think this is exactly what uh, the Hebrew writer records for us in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. It says this, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward." So Moses, in identifying with his people and going out from Egypt to see his people, to look upon their burdens, and I think what he's beginning to think he's about to do is rescue and deliver his people, is that he is leaving behind the treasures, the pleasures, the comfort, the influence, the status, the prestige of Egypt to go and take upon himself the reproaches of his people, to being identified with God's people. He would choose, the Hebrew writer would say, to forsake the riches of Egypt for Jesus. He would consider Jesus as supremely valuable and go to him. Just to press on that a little bit more, this world is not our home. We could say that in a way all of us are born into Egypt. We are all born enslaved to sin under sin's oppression. This world is not our own. How hard it is, though, to leave Egypt with all the treasures that are there. Kids, youth, young people, the greatest joys in life don't come through what you get on a report card. They don't come through the trophies that you can get on your shelf. They don't come through the people that you can date, through the people that you can marry, through the cars that you drive, through the jobs that you you get, through all your accomplishments. The greatest joys in life don't even come from the smile that you can get from your parents. The greatest joy that is offered to us in this life is the joy of coming to be found in Christ Jesus. Parents, adults, this is extremely important for us. We ought not live in a way that contradicts what we say. We can say all day long that Jesus is supremely valuable to to us, 
But if all we do is live for the treasures and pleasures and comforts of Egypt, we're contradicting ourselves. Don't live for your bank account. Don't live to get a bigger house, to drive a better car. Don't live for more security, for more comfort, for more pleasure. Don't live to to climb the ladder of of success and and to, to have greater status in this life. You can say that Jesus is supremely valuable all day long, but if you live in a way that says, I would rather have the riches of Egypt, you're going to betray what truly is going on in your heart. And for parents as well, our kids will see this. Don't parent your kids in such a way that says Egypt is more important. Don't parent them in such a way that says what you need more than anything is to get good grades, to get into the right college, to get the right career, to have the right friends, to dress in the right way, to get the right career, to accomplish all the things that you can in sports and extracurriculars. Look, they're being, Egypt is speaking to us all around saying, live for these things. And so we as parents, or we as just people who are discipling others, if we're going to say that Jesus is supremely valuable, we have to live in that way, lest we contradict ourselves. But that's hard, isn't it? Especially as parents, when you see all your friends around you, or all the the parents of your kids' classmates, they're buying them certain devices at certain ages. They're allowing their kids to do certain things. They're playing this amount of sports. They're getting into these kind of schools. They're hanging around these kind of people. And all of a sudden, the treasures, the pleasures, the joys of Egypt look a lot better than taking upon ourselves the reproach of being identified with God's people. And because of our spiritually dull eyesight, Jesus begins to not look so supremely valuable. And so we say, I I don't know, maybe I would rather stay in Egypt for the momentary joys that are offered. If we are going to live in a way that glorifies and honor the Lord, it has to be in a way that reflects what we say, that Jesus is our greatest treasure. Like You take the parables of Matthew chapter 13 when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God. It's like a merchant in search of a fine jewel, a fine pearl. Upon finding it, he goes and he sells everything he has to get it. Is that true of how we live our life, or is that just how we speak? Do we live in such a way that says, yes, Jesus is our heart's greatest treasure. And we want the adults around us to see that, the people around us to see that. We want our kids to come and treasure and value Jesus above all else. Or are we saying one thing and living another way? Moses looks upon his people's burdens. And this is that that phrase, looks on, in verse 11, is extremely important because we're going to see that same phrase in verse 25. That phrase, look on, it's not just that he's just seeing things or noticing things, but rather he is seeing something with feeling. He's seeing something in a way that will lead him to action. So as he begins to identify with his people and he's understanding something of what God is calling him to, he sees that his people are being wronged and oppressed. And he goes and he strikes down the Egyptian that is harming one of his brothers. We know from Acts chapter 7, this wasn't like a cold and calculated, or this wasn't a rash and impulsive thing that he's doing, but rather he is seeing his people oppressed, he is defending them, and he is considering, he's beginning to see that he's a type of avenger, a type of one who would rescue and deliver his people. 
And so, in defense of one of his people, one of his brothers, he strikes down the Egyptian. Is this the beginning of a revolution? Is this the beginning of salvation for God's people? Moses, the strong man, has arrived. He's at the prime age of life. He's got the power. He's got the influence. He's in just the right position. Is now the time of salvation? What happens of this? Or what happens with this? Well, he goes out the next day, and he sees one of his brothers, one of the Israelites, striking another. And he goes and rebukes the man. And how does the man respond? How does the guilty party respond? Who made you a prince over us? Who made you a judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian yesterday? So Moses, in identifying with his people and coming to understand that he would be a type of deliverer and rescue of his pe- rescuer of his people, he now gets rejected by his very own brothers. He gets rejected by his own. Notice who rejects. It's the guilty party. How many times in our own lives, whether it's to, to one of the people in this room, maybe to brothers and sisters in Christ, or maybe it's to the Lord himself, when we get convicted of sin or when our sin comes into the light and we, we recognize that we are guilty, we are the offender, we respond in pride. We reject the conviction that the Lord will bring upon us, or we reject the rebuke of a righteous person who would bring our sin into the light. Because of that, they're missing what's right in front of them. So was momentum building? No, he's rejected. And what happens after Moses' rejection? Moses flees. He finds out that Pharaoh's looking to kill him, and he flees. He runs. The rescuer that's been revealed, all this power, all this great position, he now is rejected and is fleeing from his people. So why would God work in this way? Why not use the strong man Moses? who's obviously eager and ready, who's confident, who's already taking action, why would God work in this way that his rescuer, the rescuer of his people, would be rejected and he would be forced to flee? We see that Moses goes to Midian, and we know from Acts chapter 7 that in verse 30, another 40 years pass. In the meantime, though, we see that he he meets uh, these shepherdesses from uh, uh, this, this man named Ruel, He saves them. He stands up and he even rescues them and delivers them as shepherds come and try and chase them away and chase their flock away. And we notice that Ruel gives one of his daughters, Zipporah, to Moses, and she bears a son. We notice in verse 21 that Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he is now a foreigner. So Moses, who was recognizing himself to be a rescuer of God's people, of his own people, He is rejected by his own brothers. He's forced to flee. And now we find that he's content to dwell elsewhere. Just just for a moment, put yourself in Moses' shoes. All right, you're 40 years of age when all of these events begin to happen. You're rejected. You're forced to leave. And now you're in a foreign land. Another 40 years pass. Could you imagine the confusion? Just the frustration that he might be feeling? And, and, and seeing something in the way that the Lord might be calling him to do something, and now he would wait. Uh, an easy parallel would be someone like David, right? David is anointed as a young man to be a king over Israel. Does he step into that kingly role right away? No. His life would be continually threatened by Saul. 
It seemed seemingly like forever before he would actually step into the role and position of king over Israel. So why is the Lord working in this way? Why is he doing this? I think one of the things that Exodus chapter 2 is showing us, and it show, because this pattern bears itself out in all of Scripture, is that God does not need a strong man in power to save his people. He doesn't need someone like Moses in the prime of his life, in this position in power in Egypt, a prince, a ruler with status and influence. He does not need Moses in this way to save his people. And then we come to 23 through 25, where we see the true rescuer of Israel revealed. So while Moses is away in Midian, the people are groaning, groaning under their oppression. Things are getting worse for them, and the emphasis shifts away from Moses. And notice as they're groaning, their cry comes up to the Lord. And notice what is said here. God hears their groaning. God remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God sees, and that's the same word that's used there of Moses whenever Moses looks upon the burdens of his people. Moses look, and that looking leads him towards action. So God is looking upon the burdens of his people. And just so masterfully written there at the end of 25, God knew. God knew exactly what he was about to do and accomplish for his people. But the Israelites, and, and we would be saying this if we were in their position, we'd be asking, God, where have you been? We are crying out to you. We are living in this foreign land afflicted. We're holding on to the promises that you've made to our forefathers. Where are you? When will you deliver? When will you rescue? When will you bring us back into the land that you promised? When will you fulfill your covenant that you made to Abraham? So how do we know that the Lord who how do we know that the Lord hears? How do we know that the Lord sees? How do we Lord how do we know that the Lord remembers and knows? Is the Lord shouting down from heaven, "Hey guys, I hear your groaning. Just wait a little longer." I'm seeing what's happening to you. You just need to wait a little bit. Are they getting this message? No, they're not. And they continue to groan under their oppression. But Israel would hold on to these words, and we would do well to do so as well. We know that God hears his people. We know that God sees his people because we've already seen this in Genesis. As Hagar is under oppression and Hagar is fighting for her life and the life of her son Ishmael as she is sent out. And God hears her crying out. And God sees her and provides for her. We know that the Lord is faithful even though we might not see him working because we have already see him do this with Abraham. As Abraham is put through the greatest test and trial of his life, as he climbs Mount Moriah with his son to put his son, his promised offspring, to death. And on that mountain, he comes to see the Lord as a Lord who sees. The Lord provides, and the Lord intervenes. So is the Lord worthy of our trust? Is he faithful? God needs no strong man his strong arm will work salvation. He will gather his people and redeem them with his own mighty hand. 
And that's where we see this pattern come out through all of Scripture. God loves and delights and takes joy in taking what looks like weakness to the world to show how strong he is. What looks like folly to the world to show how wise he is. And what looks like defeat on the cross to actually bring salvation and deliverance for his people. God would be the true deliverer. So how would Israel, what would they be holding on to? I think the word that they would be holding on to is the word that God spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. I will deliver you. So as Israel is groaning and they're fighting, fighting to hold on to the Lord in faith, fighting to remember all that the Lord has done, they are holding on to the word of promise. But we come to see that we have something better than what Israel had as we are groaning. Because we are groaning. So many uh, people in this room are groaning under persistent sin that they've seemingly repented of hundreds and thousands of times. So many in this room are groaning under feeling dry and disconnected and far from the Lord. Many in this room are groaning under the oppression of a fallen and broken world as their loved ones have experienced and tasted death. Some in this room are groaning under the suffering of betrayal from a close friend or the groaning that comes when a child is wandering from the Lord and from their family. So many of us are groaning under sorrows, depressions, and anxieties. Israel is holding on to a word of promise, but we have something even better that, they, that we can hold on to as we groan in this world. We don't just hold on to a word of promise, but we hold on to a person, Jesus, in faith. Jesus becomes to us the strong arm of the Lord's salvation. He, in his omnipotence, would come and clothe himself in human weakness, would seemingly be defeated on a cross, all to show and bring about the Lord's salvation and the Lord's deliverance. From Isaiah chapter 53, we see this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." Exodus chapter 2 reveals to us the true rescuer of Israel and all of God's people, and ultimately, that is Jesus. As Jesus comes to his own, according to John chapter 1, he comes to his own, and his own don't even recognize him. And as he reveals himself to his own people, his own people reject him. And ultimately, the crowds, his people, and their sinfulness would shout out, crucify him, 
crucify him because they want nothing to do with him. Yet Jesus becomes to us our redemption, our salvation, our deliverance. Jesus is who we hold on to in the midst of all of the groanings that we experience in this life. He is the one that we hold on to. He is the one that we cling to. But, but even better, even more, it, as if you know, that were enough. It, it is enough. But even more, Jesus gives us even more. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Turn over there. Romans 8, verse 26. The context of this passage in Romans 8 is this, is that creation is longing for the day when we, creation is groaning under the curse that it is in, longing for the day when God's people would be restored, when their bodies would be glorified. Creation groans, longing for the day when Jesus would return and make all things new. But not only that, but we as God's people are groaning. We are groaning in this fallen and broken world because of all the sufferings that we experience. And we say, well, yes, obviously. But not only that, Romans 8.26 says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, too deep for words. How do we know that under just what seems like groanings and sufferings and oppressions that seem to never stop, just unceasing anguish at times, how do we know that the Lord will be faithful? How do we know that the Lord hears us? How do we know that the Lord sees us? How do we know that the Lord will remember His covenant and His promises to us? How do we know that the Lord knows what he is going to do? Because when we look at Jesus, we see the salvation that's accomplished through him. And when we look at Jesus and put our faith and trust in him, his spirit comes to dwell within us. And as we groan, longing for the day when Jesus comes and makes all things new, the spirit himself is interceding for us. We're groaning. Romans chapter 8 teaches us and tells us that we don't even know how to pray as we ought to pray. I see my own sinfulness and groan, but I don't pray like I ought to pray. As I experience sorrows and anguish and suffering, I don't pray like I ought to pray. I don't know how. I'm weak. I'm fleshly. I so often doubt the Lord and distrust Him. But the Spirit of Christ, who knows the will of God, and who knows our hearts and our weaknesses far better than we do, he is near, and he is interceding with groanings too deep for words. When we don't know how to pray as we ought to pray, the Spirit is interceding for us. When we don't know how to pray, when we don't pray because we don't know how, he is praying on our behalf perfectly, perfectly. So how do we know that we will make it till the end? How do we know that the Lord will bring deliverance? Jesus. And how do we know that we won't stop believing? How do we know that we won't falter? The Spirit bears witness with us. The Spirit intercedes for us. Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end, and He will not fail. 
He will not fail his people. He will deliver. So if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you profess belief in him, but you are still fighting to live in Egypt, today is a day that we can bring that sin, bring those struggles to the Lord in repentance and say, Lord, forgive me for the ways in which I am treasuring Egypt over you and give me grace. May my heart receive you, Lord Jesus, as greatest treasure because only in Jesus is there infinite, everlasting joy for his people. Believer, if you, if you are groaning under the weight of oppression, know that the guarantee of your salvation, it's not just in a word of promise, it's in a person, it's in the person of Jesus. And even as you falter, and even as you groan, the Spirit is interceding for you, and His plans will not fail. He will accomplish His good and perfect will. He is interceding for you. If you are not in Christ, though, there is no hope for you in Egypt. There is no hope for you in a strong man. There is no hope for you in your efforts to get yourself out. The hope of salvation, though, is in the person and work of Jesus, who delights to save sinners, who delights to to lay down his life for his sheep to bring them into his salvation, into the joy of his salvation. And there we find hope for all the groanings, all the sufferings that we experience in this life. So my prayer is this. If you need to repent of sin, if you are struggling in Egypt, or if you are suffering in this wilderness, come to the Lord today and see afresh the salvation and deliverance in Jesus. And if you would like to talk more about Jesus, putting your faith and your trust in him, we would love, love to talk to you about that. Let's pray, and then we'll respond. Most holy God, we thank you that in your grace and in your mercy, you are the true rescuer of your people. You have not left us to ourselves, and in fact, you delight to come and save and rescue your people. We thank you for that, Lord God, and we rejoice in that salvation today. But Lord God, we know there are many in this room today who do not yet know you, and we pray that for them today would be the day of salvation that they would come to know the deliverance that's found in Jesus. We pray, Lord God, that you would work in their lives in that way. Lord God, we also come confessing our own weaknesses. Lord God, the groanings that we experience as we suffer in this world, in this fallen and broken world. Lord God, would you give us grace to know, to know that you hear us, you see us, you have remembered your covenant to us, And you know exactly how you will take all of these sufferings and you you will work all of that to our good and your glory. Would you comfort us in that truth today? Comfort us in the truth and the reality that for those of us who are your people, your spirit dwells within us and you perfectly intercede for your people. And we thank you and we praise you for that. So be glorified and exalted. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand and uh, respond in song to uh, what we've had the privilege of uh, being a part of today.
When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. Will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me He saves are His delight Christ will hold me fast Precious in His soul side He will hold me fast He'll not let my soul be lost His promises shall last Bought by Him at such a cost sing that again. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me And we close with a benediction, Colossians chapter 3, verses 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Amen. You're dismissed.